Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. My name is James Walner, and I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. I'm Lee Dretman, senior fellow at New America. And today, listeners, we have a very special episode. We're live on location in the Cannon House office building, and we have with us here uh, Congressman Chip Roy. He's a third-term congressman from Texas's 21st congressional district, right? And he's a member of the House Freedom Caucus. Prior to that, just to give you a, a very short bio, and we'll put his a link to all of his information in the show notes. He was the first assistant attorney general of Texas under Ken Paxton. He was the chief of staff to Senator Ted Cruz. He was a senior advisor to Texas Governor Rick Perry, and he was a Judiciary Committee staffer for Senator John Cornyn. And I just want to say that Chip is a thoughtful, considerate, deeply principled individual. He's someone I've known for a very long time. He has an extraordinarily uncanny strategic mind. And I'm not just being super nice because you let us come in here today. I'm serious. I mean, he is his strategic mind when it comes to legislation and legislative politics is, is unrivaled. And it, I learned a lot from him. I think he understands politics in a way that we should aspire to. I think you see the legislative terrain in a way that has become especially hard these days. Uh, and I want to explore that, but I want to start off by just saying, one, welcome, and, and just ask you the question, is the House broken? I mean, looking at just the past year, and you've been in the middle of a lot, and there's a lot of people on the outside that are wringing their hands, pulling out their hair, saying, we've had multiple ballots to elect a speaker, we can't raise the debt limit, we have this motion to vacate to get rid of our speaker, we can't agree on a new speaker, and they're just very worried about all of this dysfunction as they see it, and they think it's a sign that the House isn't working. And so I thought we'd ask you, what do you, what do you think? And we can do that all in 30 minutes? Uh, no, look, I, I am honored to be on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your kind words. Not sure you know, that I deserve them, but I'm deeply grateful and proud to join you guys. It's be a fun conversation. Happy to do it again. And interestingly, uh, Donald Rumsfeld had this office. Actually, it was his last office when he was in the United States House of Representatives. So I don't know, you know, to quote him, right, you go to, you go to war with the army you got, right? And that's, that's kind of the way I view uh, what we're dealing with right now. And for all of its faults, for all of its flaws, the House of Representatives still at the end of the day does reflect the country. The country has some fairly significant fissures. I think that's an understatement, Right. If the House didn't exist and we were a direct democracy, we would have some very strong fractures, right? We would have divisions that clearly separate us, whether they're state by state, region by region, age, sex, race. I mean, there's a lot of different things that divide us and certainly ideologically. So I do think the House of Representatives reflects that. So to some degree, I'd say it's it's the opposite of broken. It's It's working. It's reflecting the people and the people's house. That being said, right, I mean, you're coming at it from the standpoint of, and I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners, like, okay, if you're an institutionalist and you believe that an institution here, the House of Representatives, uh, needs to lead um, and needs to be able to, yes, reflect the people, but in a Republican form of government, kind of distill that down and go forward and make the tough decisions, I would say, yeah, I mean, it's clunky. There are issues that are certainly, you know, being laid out in full public view, but I would tell you that the process we've gone through over the last year, I think, has actually made the institution better if we can figure out how to land the plane, whether that's this Congress or next Congress or the following. Remember that this entire experiment, this American experiment, is still just a trajectory. And we're, we're just trying to affect the trajectory. And some people who are hand-wringing will say that, you know, this trajectory is that we've gone right off into the ditch, right? The house is broken and we can't do things. Others, I would say, is that, well, 
All we're doing is just modifying the direction we're going. And if you look back at what we did a year ago, and I don't want to sit here and filibuster on a give and take, but if you go back to January of last year, what we we're trying to do, and you know this, is like we were trying to fundamentally get back to some basics where you can amend, where you can bring stuff to the floor. And I would argue that for the first, and there's kind of two phases, the first six months, certainly even through into September, we were largely doing that. It wasn't perfect. Some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle would kind of quibble, and yeah, I certainly know uh, Jim McGovern on the Rules Committee would, but we were moving things forward with the full voice of the House with ref- that reflected the ideological makeup of the Republican conference, and then offering amendments. We had something that at least resembled an open rule right out of the gate in January per our demand. We had a number of structured rules, and we were moving things through. We got bills passed. Uh, we passed the strongest border security bill. Again, ideologically, some of my more left-leaning colleagues may not like the bill, but we passed a really strong bill, sent it over to the Senate. We passed limit save growth. So for the first time, conservatives would look at this and go, conservatives always said they'd vote against debt ceiling increase. We cracked the code on that. We actually got conservatives to vote for a debt ceiling increase. I think that makes the institution better. But we did it with a lot of reforms that our colleagues on the other side of the aisle didn't like. So that kind of led to the FRA. Then there was some conflab over that. Then we got to the National Defense Bill. We passed seven appropriations bills off the floor. We passed 10 out of committee down to the floor, three of which stayed on the floor. We had two that were ready to go. And then obviously we hit a wall in September. Personalities get involved, differences of opinion about what we achieve and not achieve resulted in obviously a takedown of the speaker and then a three-week debate over who would be the speaker. Does that mean the system's broken? I would argue it just reflects the differences of opinion that's going on. And as speaking as a conservative, I would tell you that you've got this populism versus institutionalist, you know, establishment or conservative. That's all just within the Republican Party. And we're trying to figure out how to navigate through that and now layer on top of all of that, Donald Trump and a presidential election. So it's a complex environment and we're trying to navigate through it. And I think we've actually accomplished a large number of things in that process. I would not say it's broken. But I would say it reflects the people who are who are deeply divided across this country, and we have to figure out how to carry it forward. So you, you talk about landing the plane. I want to know what a functioning house looks like to you. Like, like what if this institution were really thriving in a way that you would like to see it thrive? What would that look like? Would that be a more open amendment process? Would that be a more committee-driven process? Would that be a more free-flowing Congress? So, yes, to answer your question, I know James wrote about this quite a bit over a year ago and even before, the need for us to try to open the process up and be able to have amendment votes and free up the debate. And I believe that on both sides of the aisle. I've tried to advocate for that. And where I've disagreed with the process, look, I voted against my colleagues on the Republican side. I mean, just two weeks ago or a week ago, whatever that was, I voted against the rule in committee. I was the only vote because I didn't think the SALT bill was ready for prime time and it was political. And I didn't think it went through any kind of regular order or process. And we needed to, okay, if you're going to do this, take it through committee and so forth. You know, it's not, look, a majority party is going to have to figure out how to drive an agenda that the majority was elected to carry forward. That necessarily means you're not always going to have a fully open amendment process in the sort of classical sense. But I do think we ought to, as I said last year and believe now, try to open it up as much as possible, try to get amendments offered. So, for example, right now we're debating the FISA bill, right, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act reauthorization. I want to avoid, like the plague, an automatic reauthorization of this bill that had spying on Americans at the forefront of what was going on in our government. And there's bipartisan agreement on that, right? We passed a bill in the Judiciary Committee, 34 to 2, to address that issue. But the powers that be, predominantly in the intel community, are trying to, you know, throw water on that and say, well, you can't do that. We'll be all in danger. 
And I'm saying, well, we ought to have a full-throated debate on this. And right now, it looks like we're going to be able to bring a bill to the floor. This is still very touch and go that would uh, have three Republican amendments, three Democrat amendments. Uh, well, really, it's kind of three judiciary, three intel, but it's kind of a mix. My point is like three amendments that are bipartisan, actually, and see how they play out on the floor, maybe even another uh, seventh or eighth amendment. My bottom line is I do think it's important that the pressure valve that gets released on the floor when you get to vote is significant. And I think we need more of that. Doesn't mean you're not going to run through a rule that's a structured rule that's designed to pass an issue. Dems will do that. Republicans will do that. But on average, on appropriations, on things that are things like Intel and FISA and issues like that, there ought to be a robust amendment process that releases the pressure valve and lets the, the will of the body work, in my view. So a lot more votes, which you know, I think also would be good. But you talk about the powers that be and you know, you're referencing the intelligence community there. But there's also leadership in both parties that wants to protect a lot of members from having to 100%. take tough yeah. votes, right? Yeah, I agree. No, you're right. And I, I challenge that worldview. I actually think we end up making it tougher. I think if you just free up those votes, most of your constituents, I'll just say in my view, they don't get hung up on any one vote. And if they do, sometimes it's wrong. Like take, for example, I voted no on the first Tlaib censure resolution. Well, my conservative constituents were like, wait, what are you doing? Well, there were problems in the drafting. Then there was a later one that we worked out and we ended up getting some Democrat votes for that one. It was a better bill because we took time to get it right. And then so I didn't care that I voted no on the first one. Because it was the right thing to do. And my, so, yes, some people pop off on social media, but the vast majority of people look at the body of your work. You shouldn't be afraid to vote. That's what we came here to do. And I just don't fear votes. I, you know, I'll, I'll vote against my Republican colleagues, as I think, I think I might have the top or second most votes against Republicans, but I also have the most votes against Democrats. So, you know. <laughs> but why do so many of your colleagues fear taking these, these votes? Yeah, that's it. I mean, there are a lot of factors. I mean, one is there's this kind of shirts and skins environment up here. And look, I'm I, I'm a partisan. I mean, you guys know that. I'll blast my Democratic colleagues when I uh, disagree with them, which is most of the time. But when there are things where we can agree on or when you want to just put things down on the floor, you ought to vote. A lot of my colleagues, my side of the aisle, both sides of the aisle, they fear reprisal. Their chairs, you know, committee ships. You know, then they get they start buying into all the hype. Hey, we're ending to election season. If we don't do this, we're going to lose these seats. If we don't do this, we're going to lose these seats. Like, guys, I know it's a factor, but when it's the only factor, now you're getting to a place where I would tell you that the house is broken. Like, I think that piece of the pie that you just raised over the now at least two decades, I've been observing this up close and personally, and in, in, at least in part, that's where I see things being more problematic. You've got too much attention to what it's going to mean for an election and saving some seat. And we need these three seats in order to retain the majority so I can keep my chairmanships and all that stuff. Instead of let the votes play out, take your case to the people and see what happens in the election season, which I actually frankly think would inure to our benefit if we did it, just from my conservative perspective. Right. And even if it doesn't, you know, the Constitution's not here to so that we win all the time, right? I would hope that we would win all the time or whom, you know, people I agree with. But at the end of the day, that's not the way it works. And what you're describing is it sounds like it's a it's an activity. The house is a place where we go to participate in this activity. And that activity has value and it has meaning. And I think for people who may not necessarily agree with you on the issues, there's still a lot of value here. And when I say you have a fine strategic mind, you did. I really learned from you the ability to think more strategically about that legislative terrain. And how do you use the rules? How do you use the leverage you have to obtain an outcome down the road? And that's something that is, it's not, it sounds obvious, but it's a hard thing. And when I look at 
you in the, in the debate over uh, in the speaker election. I see you using leverage. And when I look at you during the debt limit debate, when you talk about these things that have happened, they've all happened because of somebody using some leverage they have to make it happen. And so do we need more members like that? I mean, what are the challenges with using the, I mean, you, you must get a lot of flack and pushback when you do that, but it seems to me that that's the thing that allows us to actually get reform. Well, I would say to say the least in terms of the, the, the pushback and the flack. Let me say one thing. You open this back, the give and take in the debate. Like I'll tell you, last night I had a, a Twitter spaces, right? And it was it was a fundraising thing. And it was a bunch of uh, supporters of mine that I'd met during the on the campaign trail with Governor DeSantis, whom I'd supported, uh, you know, in the primary. And uh, Thomas Massey joined, who, like me, had been out there on the campaign trail. But then Matt Gates joined. And, uh, you know, he's a friend here in the House. And But Matt was decidedly very pro-Trump. Point is, he got in. And we started having this very robust debate for about an hour. And it was kind of must-see TV. I mean, it was a full-throated debate about a number of different issues, about whether it was right that Kevin McCarthy was taken down, about the issues. Is the, is the House functioning better under Mike Johnson? What should be brought to the floor? And I still would tell you that if I were going to go down the road of the House being broken or the Senate being broken, it's like we don't really do that on the floor very much. The most interesting debates I've had in the last several months have been, well, first of all, go back to the speakers. Like when we were on the floor with a full chamber and we're making the case, right, for rules changes and speakers, that was fun because the chamber was full. You know, I did what's called taking the opposition time on the floor. I've done it twice now, maybe three times. I did it on the tax bill and I've done it on, uh, I think, a spending bill, CR. So I go down the floor and the, the chamber has probably 100 people in it, right? Because they're down there ready to go and they didn't expect me to reclaim time in opposition. So I did. So now instead of it being two people for the bill, the majority and the minority who are for the bill, those of us actually opposed took the time when we had an actual full-on debate on the floor. People love that. They want to see us do that. Now, to your point about where we are with respect to the institution and do my colleagues get mad about sort of raising these issues and using leverage? Sure. Of course they do. But it's, you know, they start to realize and learn, like you saw the New Yorkers started to use leverage with respect to the SALT bill, the, the state and local tax uh, issue to, to, you know, we use acronyms too much in this town. But um, they used it and they tried to, and they forced a vote. And I think it was a bad vote. I think it's a bad bill. But they were trying to use their leverage to get that to the Rules Committee and, and, and get a vote on it. So leverage can work and then you have to work across the aisle. I'll tell you what was what, or across the ideological spectrum. Last year, when we were going through all of this, one of the best things that happened as an outcome of all of that, that leverage use, was that we had people from ideological corners within the Republican Party first and then some Democrats, depending on the issue, they were having to sit in a room and figure stuff out. And so I was sitting in a room with some of my New York colleagues who had a different worldview or or some others on border security and immigration that we had different views on. And we had to hammer stuff out to the wee hours of the morning. Instead of leadership sitting in a room and sitting there point guarding it out to do what we just talked about with elections, right? Like saying, oh, we, we've got to move this piece of the puzzle around in order to win an election. We were actually all sitting in a room like with whiteboards and like writing stuff down about, you know, what the spending levels were in an omnibus or whatever. And we built friendships with, with guys that I didn't know that well. That's what we need more of across the aisle. Yes, but even within the parties, both parties are very isolated, top-down leadership-driven entities and they need to be more bottom-up, member-driven entities. Right. And you're talking about that on FISA, right? There, there is some interesting cross-partisan anti-big security state on the, the funding for the wars in Ukraine and in Israel. There's some interesting cross-partisan stuff. But there is an institutional dynamic that makes it really hard for those kinds of 
cross-partisan coalitions to to get a vote on their bills, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, that that's true. But I'll go back to the way I opened this. I mean, I think you, you have something you want to add. I'll just, I don't want to filibuster here. I would just say the House still reflects the country. There is a deep divide on immigration, a deep right. divide on cultural issues and woke issues, a deep divide on even spending to a degree, although that's maybe not as partisan. My point is there's just a divide, and the House reflects that. And so I've got bipartisan bills. I've got a bill with Abigail Spanberger to ban stock trading on members, you know, bills with go down the list. So, you know, you know, Dean Phillips and I did a bill on the PPP loans back during COVID. And I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to work with my Democratic colleagues where we agree. But there are deep divides. So then when you have these kind of cross-sectional issues like Intel or other issues like that, Ukraine, Israel, you, you mentioned, or, or others, then that's where you see sort of some different fissures. Right. But what I wanted to get to is the point that those are those are not the fights that people see out in the country, right? Because those are not the bills that come to the floor. The the leaders don't want of the parties don't want to see the bills that cause their own coalition to split. So when you talk about deep fissures in the country, I mean I think there have always been deep fissures in the country. I mean, it's a big pluralistic nation. There are a lot of different parts of the country with a lot of different traditions and a lot of different values. But it, it seems like the way that we are structuring politics in this moment, it really elevates all of those divisions and makes it seem like that's everything is divided. Whereas what, what we're just talking about now is that actually there are some really interesting opportunities for for cross-partisan agreement on, on issues that are often suppressed. What I would Note, however, is I might actually see some of that as a bug, not a feature, depending on the issue, um, something I might call the uniparty, right? What I would tell you is, is over the last six months, I'd have to go back and count, not in front of me, but I'm pretty sure I'm correct. Every major bill that has moved off the House floor has been with more Democrat votes than Republican votes. Now, you might think that's great, or some, some of your listeners might think that's awesome from an ideological perspective. But what I would tell you is, the, the uniparty, as I might pejoratively refer to it, right, which is, and some of my people say, oh, well, that's bipartisanship in action. Okay, we could have a whole debate about that, right, and a whole, you know, podcast about that. What I would tell you is, from my perspective, what you see is, whether it's continuing resolutions, which is most of those, right, and funding bills, or, say, for example, how Ukraine might work in the end, that bill passed the Senate, right, with 50, whatever, Repo Democrat votes last night, 5 a.m., like 12 hours ago with, um, you know, 22 Republican votes. My point is, that's where the sort of uniparty direction goes to do what we need to do with continuing to fund wars without paying for it. I'm being ideological here, or, or at least or being honest, honest about your, my political view, yeah. which, which yeah. I would say is bad, right? I would say it's like, this is what happens when the sort of system of this town, the swamp, the, the defense industrial complex, that's an overused word, but like the powers that be, I've had Republican colleagues going out there and saying, oh, yeah, we've got to keep this war going in Ukraine. It's great economics in Huntsville, Alabama, and it's great economics and, you know, whatever, wherever the facilities are building different war machines. That's a very smart strategy on the defense industry to make sure that there's well, sure. something in it for you. Yeah. Well, Ukraine was outselling that, though. And so we've got to say, like, what, what are you guys doing? You're actually ticking us off with doing that. And that's now that goes back to a little bit more of your populist first institutionalist or your populist first. And I'm, what I would tell you is I think what we're seeing right now on both sides of the aisle, certainly within the Republican Party, it's harder for me to point to the Democratic Party as much, you're seeing that tension between the populist kind of uprising or push and the institutionalist, you know? And and like, you know, I, my former bosses, right? They would cut across all those, right? John Cornyn's going to be your more institutionalist lane, right? Right out of the Bush playbook, right? 
Ted Cruz comes along and he's rattling against that. But then where does he fall? You know, Rick Perry kind of straddled all of that, right? So you've got that and you've got this growing push. Now you layer Donald Trump on top of that and the politics of the moment. And now you got Tucker Carlson overseas, like talking about all sorts of you're layering all sorts of things in there that are getting to the heart of the divide. And some of us are trying to preserve the institutions while changing how they react and push what the people are wanting to see pushed from the electorate. And the uniparty votes aren't the ones that are doing that. When you have a divide on border security, right, you just have a fundamental different view. I believe the borders are being left wide open intentionally by my Democratic colleagues. I see no other way to perceive it. We can debate that. We can have a whole different podcast on that issue. But there's no other way for me to interpret what I see in Texas when I literally see 10,000 people in a day just walk across the border. And, you know, we can debate, oh, they're supposed to asylum all, you know, fine, have those debates. I see what I see. That's a divide. We just think that's wrong and contrary to existing law. My Democratic colleagues think it's fully compliant with existing law and right. How do you square that circle? You, you know, I talk to my friends like Henry Cuellar who are interested in trying to get it right. I talk to a few, but it's hard. It's a hard to square that circle with a, with a widely divergent view. And the only way you can do it is by debating it and arguing about well, it. And, you, and in the end, that's the purpose of the House, right? I mean, you, you pass legislation. That's a, a role. But right. you also adjudicate the concerns of your constituents, right? Correct. And I think that's a, it's so important. But for people listening to this, and like, for instance, right now, we've gotten over the past decade and a half so much money poured into institutions and think tanks and to work of like what Lee and I do and others. And it's like, how are we going to save democracy? And I use air quotes here um, because I think people perceive democracy differently. But for those on the outside who are concerned and who perceive themselves to be institutionalists, who may or may not agree with you, with me, I mean, Lee and I don't agree on hardly anything, but we love this idea of Congress. We love the idea of this place that's sacred, right? What can they do? What can What is helpful out there for people like you? I assume that there are people like you on in the other party that are more institutionalist minded. And by institutionalist, I mean, you see, as I see it, I'm putting words in your mouth, an arena that you step into to try to win. You're not shy about that. You're, you're going to win. You want to win. Sure. And you want to be effective at it. But you can't, you won't even have that opportunity if you don't have the arena. And so this is a question. I mean, my staff and I had broken, I think it was yesterday, I lose track of time, uh, with whiteboards. And we do this, you know, kind of once a quarter-ish, where we just kind of take a step back and say, well, why did we run? Why are we here? What are we doing? Try not to get caught up in chasing the puck, but be where the puck's going or establish where the puck should go, right? So we're having that whole conversation. And... I'm an odd duck in a way in that on multiple levels, frankly, but, but with respect to this, in that I am a, almost a populist institutionalist. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, you guys can figure out his, you guys have thought about history more than I have like on this. Jeff Sessions is a populist. I mean, there's a lot more out there. I mean, right. But- it's like, in other words, I have a sensibility for where the people are right now and that this government is not reflecting them. I simultaneously understand the importance of institutions, whether they are non-governmental institutions, churches and, you know, civil society, or whether we're talking about government and the Congress and the Senate and doing its job. And, you know, all of the things you and we've forgotten about, you know, in terms we've studied in the Senate being the cooling saucer in the House. And so I am a little bit of an odd duck on that in that regard. In other words, there's some that are in the like, you know, burn it down mode. Some people might perceive me that way, but I'm always constantly trying to figure out how do we protect what is good and great about this, right? The worst system except for all the others, right? To, to use the old joke. And I think that I try to be where I started this conversation. The House is reflecting a divided electorate. So what do we do in that environment to keep this together, right? Is this 1858? I don't know. Is this 
pick a time in history where we've had divisions and, and we found ways to navigate through them. So to now come up on 250 years of our history, less than that from the Constitution. But what do we do to maintain a house where we can function and do work? I believe, and this is going to get really arcane and small, I believe that something like a balanced budget amendment or requirement would do more to preserve the institution than anything we could do. It forces the debate. Right now, the ability to write a blank check, which everybody does across party lines, and they do it with reckless abandon and frankly, without apology. They are doing that in a way that I think is destructive to our country, but also the institution, because you're never forced to sit down at a table like you guys are in your families and your homes and your businesses, like, you know, our street is like every single entity I've ever been a part of church. I mean, you can't do that. The one entity, frankly, in the world, but particularly, you know, in other countries, we just print money. And if you do that, then how am I forced to sit down and make a call on how you're going to deal with Medicare or Social Security? How am I forced to make a call on taxes? We used to talk about tax and spend liberals as a pejorative as conservatives. Well, we're all now just borrow and spend everybody's. There is no difference between the parties at all. None. Zero. They are borrow and spenders. As a result, every group that comes in my office right here and comes in and sits down, they're saying, what grant can you get me? What money can you get me? Why? Because they're now dependent on it. And if I bring that up, my Democratic colleagues say, you're not taxing corporations enough. To which I say, Let's have a debate about tax policy. But we had 19.6% of GDP taken into taxes in 2022, which is the highest level we've ever had. Yet our national deficit was $2 trillion. We're broken that way. That, if you ask me what's broken, we are broken because we never have to make tough choices. And if we don't fix that, we will not fix the House. We will not fix the Senate. And we will not fix the country. I mean, that's what you mentioned at the pre-Civil War era. I mean, they were deeply divided, but they came together and they argued aggressively and very intensely. And it wasn't always fair and pretty, but they had arguments that had resolutions or at least that for a temporary I mean, moment. You, you could argue that that resolution had to go through a much more difficult uh, path than just the debates in the halls of the House and the Senate, right? I mean, right. if, if you're, all, like, if you're Jefferson Davis and you're resigning yeah. from your Senate ship uh, to go back and, you know, be the president of the Confederacy, right? I mean, you're they, they hit a wall. But the point is you have to have an argument. And when you have an argument, when people participate in that argument, most of the time, slavery accepted, even when you lose, you're going to lose, maybe you get 30%, but you're going to be reconciled in a way to the outcome, in a way that you weren't. I otherwise. generally agree with your premise. Yeah. And that, that moment in history was, was obviously mm-hmm. unique. But it, it does merit study, right, in terms of where are we in terms of a people? And where are we in our divisions? What is binding us together as a country? I mean, it's not faith as much anymore, right? 28% of the population will now check a box saying they're unchurched, they're unaffiliated. People can debate whether that's good or bad. An atheist will say that's great. A person of faith will say that's bad. But what I'm telling you is for the men at the time, men that were in the foxholes in 1944 in December in Bastogne, from all, all walks of life and all across the country, they were bound together by something. And it was an idea. It was an idea about freedom and democracy in America and all the greatness But there was a lot of faith and other things that bound us together as a country. When those break apart and we go down the world in the row, for for better or worse, whatever your worldview is, of this secular worldview, what's binding us together anymore? And that's a question that we have to wrestle with as a country if we want to figure out how to unite. And all I'm saying is, is when you're breaking apart the cultural norms that hold you together, and when you're spending money recklessly to just fund all manners of dependence, which is what we're doing, we're funding dependency, what's left, Right. So then you, everybody looks at Congress and they say, what's wrong with you guys? You can't get it right. Well, well, you're right. We're spending money we don't have. 
but we're reflecting a country that's doing a lot of the same. Right. So this dimension between populist versus institutionalist cuts across what we think of as sort of left and right. And it's something that I struggle with. People say, oh, well, why don't we trust our institutions? Well, do they deserve our trust? You know, maybe not. M- maybe we need to reinvent our institutions in certain ways to, to reflect this, this change reality, to reflect the pluralism of this country. I mean, we're, we're not going, I don't think we're going back to a time when people are much more religious. And homogenous, whatever. Or homogenous. So question is, how, how do we set up a legislature that, that can be a forum for, for this pluralism in this country? And maybe that means that the, the, gov- the federal government is doing too much and more stuff should happen at the state and local level. But then whichever party's in power decides that the government at the national level should be doing more. And even at a, a state level, there's a, there's a, a lot of states that, that are overruling cities not letting localities have home rule. So it's, it becomes just a game of power. Yeah, I mean, and that's a, a great question. I mean, for, I'd say, 30 years of my life now, since all the way back till I was in college at the University of Virginia and focusing on the power of states at the time was a significant debate. We were debating at the time and then all through my time in the Judiciary Committee, working for Rick Perry in Texas, where we talked a lot about the 10th Amendment uh, and talking about trying to restore federalism. I certainly believe that had we adhered to those structures, that we would be in a better place for a more pluralistic, less homogenous America. Allow us to have some disagreements state by state. Allow a state that is more dominated by Christian constituents to live in that space and one that's more Jewish or more, you know, atheist or whatever, go down the list. Allow that to occur in a pluralistic 50 states bound together under one idea. But we have also during that time and going all the way back to Wickard v. Filburn and all the stuff we could debate here and nerd out on, we have fundamentally kind of broken that through the use of the spending power and the use of the Commerce Clause. We have kind of uh, destroyed most of those semblances of federalism that allowed us to have those, those kind of differing views state by state. So I think that's a problem. I think now, can we restore that? And that be the thing that we're able to sort of diffuse the pressure? I've always argued that. I'm and Now I'm, I'm rethinking it in the current world. But a decade ago, I would have told you yes. I would have said that's a way to release the pressure valve, allow Texas to be Texas, allow California to be California, and let that work. But the, you, we see how that plays out. But even within Texas, right, like Austin is sure. very is very distinct. And within California, there are a lot of conservatives in the eastern part of the state, the more agricultural part of the state, who think the, the, west, the, the western part of the state are, are crazy. So it, are, are states even the, the right unit here if we're thinking about real localism? Well, I'm, let me be very pragmatic about it. In our Republican form of government that was, had a federal government that was created by the states, yes. And you have to do that because I get that pushback all the time. It's like, well, why should the state government in Texas push back on local governments, whether it's Austin or whatever? And by the way, that's not always the way you think I might mean it. There are things that the state does from a conservative standpoint about limiting or, you know, making it to where, you know, you can't cut certain trees down or certain development stuff and they, they cut down on local control. I'm actually on the local government side on saying, whoa, 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 let us zone, let us figure things out. But the state has the right to do it. And there is no, you know, constitution setting up the framework for the state. I mean, the states right, all can right. do whatever they want to do. Right, are not in the Right, right. So, so they can do what they want to do at a state level. But, but to answer your question in a philosophical standpoint, if we're going to do it, we're going to have to get busy doing it quickly because we've, we're now setting up these stratus of separation that are getting really hard to figure out how to allow us to live 
peaceably amongst each other with wildly different views on the world. And this highly pluralistic 330 million and exploding population, well, not exploding, but, you know, growing through immigration and other things, you know, and by the way, 50 million of the people in this country are foreign born. Now people say, well, that's great. Well, that's the highest percentage we've ever had. It's like 16%. They have 20 million kids. Now you've got roughly 7 million that have come under the Biden administration illegally, plus the annual legal, plus the people that are gotaways. Whatever those numbers are, we kind of have to guess. That's fundamentally changing the country. There's no doubt about that. I mean, there's consequences to everything, right? I mean, yeah. and that people pretend like there's not. And it sounds like we need to put counties in the Constitution, number one. It would probably work. <laughs> um, but no, I, you know, I know we're short on time yeah. here, and I know you've got to run. I'm not going to ask you for a grant for politics in question. Um, I think that would, you know, uh, you know, we're not going to do that. I'll get a big eye roll here yeah. from everybody. But no, I, you know, in just in in the brief, you know, seconds that we have sure. left with you, if you could just share, you know, and thank you one, but the you've been at this for a while. I've known you for a long time, and just I think too often people don't appreciate the personal side of what it's like to wake up every morning, put your feet on the ground, look yourself in the mirror, leave your family, go to work in an, in an environment that isn't exactly healthy and to really give it your all day in and day out. That takes a toll. And what has it been like over the course of your career? Is there anything you can share, any words of wisdom for people who might want to follow in your footsteps or for people who are trying to figure out why are you here in the first place? Well, you know, my story I was here and I was working and then I uh, was back in Texas, uh, thought I was done with public service. And then I was diagnosed with cancer, um, went through that and kind of came out of the other side of that. My daughter was four months old. My son was less than two years old. And I was kind of renewed my commitment to public service and wanting to save this country for them. And look, it is an honor every day to walk in here and work with these great people on my staff. And, And let me just say something on a more positive note. I've got, you know, strong disagreements with a lot of people on the Hill. And there are some members of Congress that I care for less than I do others. But for the most part, Okay, most part, good people who are up here trying to serve their country well. And I've got friends across the aisle. I've got friends, obviously, in my party, people that get together. They have prayer groups. They support each other. They reach out to each other if they're sick or whatever's going on. They're human beings with families. My friend Scott Perry has two two daughters that are about the same age as my kids. He's rolling back to Pennsylvania as much as he can to see his kids. You know, I, I fly back the best I can to get home to see my, my kids. You know, I flew out Sunday and, you know, I missed, you know, my son was having a little Super Bowl thing and, you know, I miss golf tournaments and I miss baseball games and I miss volleyball games for my daughter and 4 H. You know, my son won the uh, 4-H showmanship award for showing goats, and I was in Iowa campaigning for Ron DeSantis. I mean, look, it's just it's part of what we're doing. But remember this, those men that were fighting for freedom in, you know, 1942, 3, 4, 5, my dad didn't meet his dad until he was three years old. Right. There, there are men and women that were sitting in foxholes over in Afghanistan and Iraq on nine month and 12 month deployments. Guys, you did five, six, seven deployments. Look, I come up here and people throw mean tweets at me. I mean, who gives a damn? The end of the day, all I'm trying to do is come up here and fight for them. It sucks being away from your family. It's hard. It's hard on our, our spouses. It's hard on our kids. But, you know, my kids know what I'm trying to do. John Quincy Adams was away from John Adams at long stretches of time. He knew what his dad was trying to do. I'm not comparing myself to John Adams. I'm just saying. You're a little taller. Yeah, a little, a little taller. But um, all I can do is picture the movie John Adams. That's I picture. That's who John Adams is in my head. But, but uh, in any event, uh, look, I'm uh, deeply appreciative of the ability to serve, the honor to serve. Appreciative of guys like you guys, whether I agree with you or not on different issues. Trying to, you know, focus on this stuff from an institutionalist perspective is important. And we just got to figure out how to, you know, keep moving along. And like I said, it's the worst system except for all the others. Well, thanks for being here. Yeah, uh, this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. 
This podcast is a joint production between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Sarah Jacob. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. Theme music composed and performed by yours truly. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps.